Do women who are taking hormone therapy need to worry? Hospital readmission risk. How much of the hospital versus the patient? What about new drugs on the market? How much did they really cost to bring there? And breast cancer surgery, when less is more. That's what we're talking about this week on PodMed, the weekly look at the medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang, professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins and president of the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Rick, I would like to turn first to JAMA Internal Medicine, an issue that fries my soul, where Big Pharma has been making the argument for many years, decades even, that they have to recover a lot of research and development or R&D costs, and that those are baked into these really exorbitant prices of new drugs. This analysis seems to cast that right into the gutter. In fact, if you look at a recent study, not the one we're going to talk about now, that was done with information provided by industry, it suggested that on average it takes about $2.7 billion in 10 years to bring a drug from discovery to market. So what these authors did was to try to, in a more transparent way, estimate what the cost of drug development is for 10 of the most recent cancer drugs. So these are 10 companies. The way the authors did it was they looked at the Securities and Exchange Commission. When these companies file, they have to file what the R&D, what the research and development costs are. So the 10 companies, on average, it took them about 7.3 years, not 10 years, to bring the drug from development to where it's actually used to treat patients. The median drug development was about $648 million. On average, these drugs have been available for approximately four years. When you take a look at the cost of all 10 drugs, about $7.2 billion, the sales of those drugs has been $67 billion, about nine times more than it costs to develop the drugs. And cancer drugs in particular are especially egregious because many studies support the notion that people who have to have these drugs in order to survive experience significant financial impact as a result of the drug costs. It's interesting, in an accompanying editorial, the author said people might say, well, these are cancer drugs and they just cost more and it's really not relevant to other drugs. But if you take a look at one of the new hepatitis C drugs, it took about $315 million to develop it. And already its sales, just in one quarter in 2017, sales of over $2.6 billion. What the drug companies in the United States are reaping in terms of the sales far outstrips the research and development costs for the drugs. And I have to say, I think this is, of course, a morally indefensible practice. It's unclear to me, however, what can be done about it. Unfortunately, the drug companies using the higher figures, $2.7 billion in 10 years to develop drugs, have used that as a way to prevent Congress and legislation from actually negotiating drug costs and looking at risk-benefit analysis. As we've talked about, a lot of the increase in health care costs currently is due to increasing drug costs. So if we're going to control health care costs, this is an area we have to do it, and it appears we can do it without disadvantaging the drug companies. And I would just add, and this is the last thing I'm going to note about this, that a lot of the R&D actually takes place with federal dollars in places like this one. And so if those are being factored into that R&D cost with regard to pharma, that's entirely specious. And in fact, that's exactly what the authors point out, is some of the cancer drugs and the hepatitis C drugs were sponsored with federal funds, but they included that as part of the research and development. So those are costs the company didn't bear, but the citizens in the U.S. did bear. Clearly, the thing I'm going to discuss on the blog. Let's turn from here to the Journal of the American Medical Association, a long-standing question. 
when women reach menopause and they're troubled by hot flashes and all the rest of that stuff and they select hormone replacement therapy, is there a danger to doing that? Elizabeth, this has been a roller coaster. What these authors try to do is really look at the whole picture. We have two large studies, one of which women received either placebo or the combination of estrogen or progestin for about five and a half years, or the other study where they received estrogen alone versus placebo for an average of about seven years. And by the way, these studies were stopped prematurely because there was concern that the use of hormonal therapy increased the risk of stroke or breast cancer. We now have 18 years since these studies were done. Let's look at these women and see, did hormonal therapy increase their risk of death, either all-cause death or specifically death related to cardiovascular disease or cancer. And what they discovered is that there was no increased risk of death with hormonal therapy, either estrogen alone or estrogen progesterone, either all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, or breast cancer mortality. So this should be reassuring to women who have vasomotor symptoms that are really uncontrollable or for women that need it for osteoporosis control or for some other reason. Let's talk about duration of therapy. In both of these studies, the duration of therapy was five and a half to seven years. The real question is, if hormonal therapy is for a longer period of time, 10 or 15 years, how does it affect mortality? These studies don't address that, Elizabeth. Okay, so for right now, a fairly short duration and feel confident that A, you don't have hot flashes, or at least they're reduced, and B, it's not gonna impact your mortality. I think that's the story from these studies. Okay, since we're in JAMA then, let's talk about another long-standing practice for women with breast cancer. Often the lymph nodes that are in their armpits or the axilla are dissected, and this is a look at that practice. The reason for that is when women were found to have breast cancer, they were more likely to survive at that time if the breast cancer was removed and all the accompanying tissue, that was the underlying muscle and all the lymph nodes where that cancer would drain to. What has happened over the last several decades is we've come better at determining whether the cancer is metastasized. We have better medical therapy. We have better radiation therapy and more targeted therapies as well. But in women who have a small cancer, less than about two inches in size, you do a lymph node biopsy of the sentinel nodes. That's the first ones that drain the cancer. If they're positive, do you need to remove all the lymph nodes in the armpit, the axilla, or not? And how does that affect mortality? Because when you remove all the lymph node, it increases your risk of having complications. It restricts movement of the arm. It increases the risk of infection and swelling, lymphedema, the accumulation of lymph fluid in the arm. The authors looked at the 10-year overall results of small breast cancer, positive sentinel nodes, half of whom had an axillary dissection and half who didn't. And they looked at the 10-year survival and what they discovered was that removing all the lymph nodes in the axilla did not improve survival, nor did it improve what's known as cancer-free survival as well. So this is good news for women. Now, all these women, by the way, had adjuvant chemotherapy and radiation therapy. So it wasn't just surgery alone, but even in that setting, axillary node dissection did not improve survival. I think this is really great news, and I hope that all women who are being diagnosed with fairly early stage breast cancers are going to listen and not allow this practice to continue because lymphedema is really troubling for women. Absolutely. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to give the least amount of therapy to be effective. And the nice thing is that the 10-year survival in these women was about 85 or 86%. Good news. Finally, let's turn to the New England Journal of Medicine. Of course, this is an ongoing issue for people in our world of readmission. Gosh, trying to reduce the number of times people come back, the amount of time in which they come back to the hospital following 
being in the hospital for a certain period of time. Lots of pressure and even reimbursement relative to this. Now this study takes a look at what are the factors related to readmission. Elizabeth, you hit the nail on the head is they're tying some of the reimbursement to hospitals and to physicians about once you discharge a patient, can you keep them out of the hospital? There's been somewhat of a controversy in that whether this is a good quality measure or not. Some people just get readmitted because of their disease, some because of their socioeconomic status or they can't afford medications, there's not good follow-up, and sometimes it's related to the hospital. It may be a poorly performing hospital. So how do you tease all this out? What I really liked was the way they approached this. They looked at all hospital discharges over the course of a year from June 2014 to 2015. All Medicare patients who were discharged from the hospital. And with the first half, they looked at the individual hospitals to say, okay, which of them had the highest versus the lowest readmission rates? Then the next thing they did is they took individuals that had been discharged and readmitted to a hospital. Some of them got readmitted to the same hospital, some to a different hospital. And that different hospital could be better performing or poorly performing. And so using the same patient, you're able to tease out how much of this effect is due to the hospital versus the patient. And what they discovered was that the absolute percentage difference was about 2% of the hospital readmissions were due to the hospital effect. And that doesn't sound very much. What that means is for every 50 patients that are discharged, charge, one of those will be readmitted to the hospital because the hospital is not as well performing as other hospitals. Okay, so all this is great. What are we going to do about this from a systemic point of view? And for patients themselves, what does it suggest to you? At a system level, once we've identified the poorly performing hospitals, we need to identify the processes that are not in place or are not in working compared to the well-performing hospitals and correct those. And we know if we do that based upon this study, that we'll be able to decrease readmission by at least 2%. I think that's the major take-home message. Well, I guess I would sum that by saying it's a good thing that we're looking at all of these factors because we need to figure out some way to get our arms around this. I agree. And the other thing that tells us is, okay, once we've corrected that, then let's address the patient issues that could be contributing to this as well. Excellent. On that note, that's a look at this week's medical headlines from Johns Hopkins. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all live well. <laughs>